Welcome to the program, everybody. You just stepped inside of Psychotic Bump School, the place where education and entertainment meet at the intersection of funk and soul. My name is DJ Rome, and I want to welcome you to another exciting edition of Psychotic Bump School. So, ladies and gentlemen, tonight we have an amazingly full show. It's going to be all music this evening as we're coming out of Grammy weekend. You know what I'm saying? For 2023. So check out this lineup. We're going to have our good friend DJ Tomas in the house. DJ Tomas is a part of the Underground Collective in Southern California. He's been putting together some wonderful events in the jazz, reggae, hip-hop scene, as we affectionately refer to it as the Underground of West Coast. That's right, LA Underground in Southern California. DJ Tomas is thick up in that scene. He's one of the good guys, y'all, and I'm excited that he's joining us right here on Psychotic Bump School. So that's DJ Tomas. And coming up later, we're gonna be having our good brother, Mr. A. Scott Galloway in the house, and we're gonna be celebrating the life and musical contribution of the late and recently passed Barrett Strong. That's right, Barrett Strong, along with Norman Whitfield, was part of an amazing songwriting collective in tandem for Motown Records uh, into the 1970s, starting in the 60s, really. But the, the psychedelic funk of the 70s wouldn't have been the same without the penmanship and artistry and talents of one Barrett Strong. He passed away, y'all. Some of the best songs you've ever heard in your life were written by this man. I heard it through the grapevine. I wish it would rain. Papa was a Rolling Stone. I mean, this cat is the cat. All right. So he recently passed away, y'all. And uh, we're going to be talking about him and celebrating his life. Uh, so befitting for Grammy Awards weekend. Uh, Barrett Strong has passed away and A. Scott Galloway is going to help us pay tribute. So that's going to be our lineup. So you might want to call your friends and family to the radio or the computer because we are about to set it off. So this is KCWGTheTruth.com. My name is DJ Rome. Welcome to Psychotic Bump School. Stay tuned for more. We're going to kick off our show with DJ Tomas after this. This is DJ Tomas from Emoja Hi-Fi in Los Angeles. You're listening to Psychotic Bump School with your host DJ Rome on KCWG, thetruth.com, the best internet radio station on the planet. Thank you. 
Okay, we are back. KCWG, thetruth.com. This program is called Psychotic Bump School. My name is DJ Rome. And ladies and gentlemen, I have a really, really special guest in the house for this one. Yeah, this guy has been all over the country. He has been one of the most uh, ardent music stalwarts in Southern California, all of California, really, because he's gone from coast to coast, from north to south, back to the east coast for a spin or for a spell, I should say. And now he's back in California. And I can't wait to hear all about his life journey, musical journey. But we're going to talk some uh, DJ stuff, y'all. We're going to talk some music. So uh, it's my honor to welcome my really good friend, the good brother, Mr. DJ Tomas. Tomas, how you doing, man? Greetings, Rome. It's so great to talk to you. It's been a minute, but I feel like we've yeah. never lost our connection. So, so, so pleased and so honored to be a guest here. Absolutely. Thank you for joining me, man. I have to give it up to you, man, because I remember when I first moved to Northern California, you were the very first person that I met up with uh, in the big city of San Francisco. I didn't know a soul up here, but I did hear before I got up here that you were up here somewhere. And so I just want to thank you uh, for being the, uh, the uh, you know, throwing out the welcoming wagon for me. You made me feel really at home during a really uh, disruptive time in my life and transition. So uh, you're a dear friend, man. And it's an honor to talk to you today, man. Oh, likewise. Likewise. Um, you know, it was a pleasure to, to reconnect with you in Northern California because I'd been such a fan of, uh, you know, your work and the Soul Children and all the great events that you guys have put together. I mean, seriously, from the heart, um, you know, the music that the Soul Children and, and yourself as a part of the collective played in Los Angeles during the time that I was there, had a big influence on me. And and um, it was sort of like all the music that I always wanted to hear at one spot. So mm -hmm. I appreciate, you know, all the contributions that you've made uh, in your own right. So yeah, it was just a natural wow. thing, you know, like let's, let's link up again. How did DJ Tomas come up in Southern California? It was, as you said, probably before we were recording, it was a very natural, organic thing that people who have sort of a similar musical palette and template, it's just a foregone conclusion that eventually their paths are going to cross. And I certainly was a fan of what you were doing as well. How did this all start for you in a nutshell? How did you come to cross paths with us, the Soul Children, DJ Daz? I mean, all the people you came to be known to work with, Umoja. Uh, how did this all start for you, man? Yeah, so I'm a born and raised in the Bay Area, um, down in the South Bay near Mountain View, California. Mm -hmm. And um, I'd always been into music as a, as a kid and sort of like in my teens, I started gravitating towards reggae and ska and alternative and hip hop and a lot of different styles of music. Um, as a very young kid, I used to listen to a radio station in the Bay Area called KSOL, KSOL. Yes. And that was my exposure to groups like uh, the Gap Band and the Pointer Sisters and Roger and Roger and Zap and you know, uh, Smokey Robinson and just a plethora of, of different sounds and music. So that formed kind of a basis of my education at the same time college radio was really, really uh, important at the time too. Um, right. All over the Bay Area, all over the Bay Area, amazing college radio stations at like UC Berkeley and Foothill College and Los Altos and Stanford University up in Davis. So pretty much anywhere you went in the Bay Area, there was a amazing college radio station that you could tune into. And I, I definitely picked up on those airwaves, um, exposing me to a lot of things. So when I moved down to Los Angeles for college, I was kind of like, hey, let me dive into music like full time, like majorly. 
And I had some exposure to radio um, in high school. We had a, like a little 10 watt radio station at our, at our high school. And I was already doing that. So I was like, let me join the radio club at Loyola Marymount University in, in LA. And so I became a member of KXLU radio station. And just that became my world and my life. Like just, mm -hmm. I would be up there till two in the morning and then back there again at eight in the morning and, you know, just doing every kind of job I could from, uh, you know, on live, like live host to public affairs department, interviewing guests and whatnot. Mm. And um, so at the time, I actually taught myself how to mix records on like belt drive turntables up at the radio station. And I was like, okay, so I, I can match beats and whatnot. I can blend you know, reggae records together, rhythms and whatnot. Um, let me try this out in clubs. And so I kind of actively started petitioning for opportunities to go spin. And I think, I forget how it happened either. Someone from a club night said, hey, can you come and, you know, play my night or what it was. I'd been going out to a lot of clubs in LA at the time. And so eventually I got my, sort of my break, if you will, uh, playing in downtown Los Angeles at some like uh, uh, I think it was down on like Spring and Sixth Street at a Chinese restaurant that they closed for the night and like mm. put in turntables and speakers and did a did a party there and I you know I played like whatever crate and a half of records that I had at the time <laughs> and from then on I was just completely hooked in into the world of DJing and so that was probably uh 1990 or 91 I, I, that's the one I re recollect it happening maybe yeah maybe like 1990 I think is when all that started wow and humble beginnings right <laughs> yeah exactly and um you know being a DJ on KXLU gave me some like exposure to you know other promoters and people at the time other DJs um, and so I became part of that kind of community and simultaneously I got sort of one of my first official jobs which was at Rhino Records a record mm -hmm. store in Westwood California sure. yep and so that became another big part of my life just as I was finishing college I became very heavily involved in working at record stores and of course, it's impossible when you work at a record store that sells new and used vinyl to not like start acquiring things. And so it just became a mad kind of like learning curve for me at that point. Um, and Rhino was a really special place. It's all like misfits and people in the music industry and musicians. And, yep. you know, there are tons of people who had their own bands or were putting on shows, et cetera, et cetera. So it really exposed me to a lot of like both the big and small of the music industry. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't very long after that, that uh, I kind of switched jobs and went over to Aaron's records. And that when I was at Aaron's records, that's when I really came in, con in contact with you guys as the soul children. And I think the first soul children party I went to was around, I remember it as 94, uh, the, one of the brown rice and barbecue parties down on Wilshire. Yeah. But excuse me if my, my recollection is a little fuzzy of that. That sounds about right. Period. Yeah, sounds about right. So that's probably where I first uh, heard you play or met you or came in contact with you in uh, 
you know, the great Soul Children Collective. Um, and that, that particular night, uh, Brown Rice and Barbecue was a huge, had a huge impact on me. I started dabbling in promoting clubs myself, um, including a night I started with DJ Daz from Brass and Delicious Vinyl. It's, our night was called Umoja Jazz and Raga Lounge. Yes. And we had been doing that for a little bit. And the whole vibe there is why won't, why couldn't we have like a live jazz band open for DJs and then interact with the DJs throughout the set? And mm. we got very, very lucky because um, at the time there were some guys gigging um, at, under different names. Um, and one of the key members was a guy named Marcus Shelby. Mm. Marcus Shelby went on to form Black Note and he is now a renowned uh, bass player, upright bass player who's like led orchestras and he's written scores and he, he actually lives in the Bay area right now. And um, mm. he's been incredibly successful. So I tip my hat to Marcus Shelby because he kind of formed the core of what became the Emoja quintet mm. um, and guys like Josh Coslow on trumpet were in that yes. band. Yep. Emil Poré was playing guitar um a cat named willie was playing drums and um all these guys went on to like pretty significant successes like session jazz musicians or members of other uh outfits how did you find your voice as a dj because I, I was tripping off of you talking about the belt driven turntables like oh man i remember those days but <laughs> you describe what it was like to go from playing on the radio to playing out live when you were when you were doing the emoja thing with daz and uh yeah Josh and them uh how difficult of a transition was that for you sure so at our club night uh emoja jazz and raga lounge um we were all playing different varieties of music arranging from reggae and dance hall and reggae hip hop artists like Jamalski and Poor Righteous Teachers and Boogie Down Productions. Um, but we were also playing a lot of jazz, funk and soul, what we were calling at the time rare groove or rare funk. Yes. There, there was a movement earlier than that called acid jazz, which was kind of newer artists playing the sound and style of yes. funk and rare groove. Mm -hmm. um, artists like Brand New Heavies and uh, Jamiroquai were doing kind of that style. Oh, yes. But what we were interested in were the original artists. And at the time, Blue Note was putting out their Blue Breaks compilations. Mm -hmm. And there were another other number of other companies like putting out like Rare Funk and Rare Groove mm. compilations. So we were we were buying all that up. We were going back and trying to find all the early Blue Note recordings that had breaks on them. And um, uh, of course, the original more obscure groups like chocolate milk and ramp and wow um you know just some artists that had a sound a distinctive sound that we we kind of instinctively knew and loved but we weren't really exposed to so we went searching and digging for all that of course at the, at the time we were also simultaneously hearing those samples on you know Man. records by pete rock and diamond d and yes you know um marley marl and some yes. of those amazing producers at the time, right? So wow. give thanks for all those uh, hip hop producers that were digging in the crates and exposing us all to Man. those samples in that music, right? Woo. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. I mean, what he just gave you, ladies and gentlemen, if you were able to hear all of that, he mentioned chocolate milk. 
Now, without, <laughs> without Googling chocolate milk, not the drink, but there was a funk band named Chocolate Milk, and they're known for a famous sample called what, ladies and gentlemen? Action speaks louder than words, right, Tomas? Yes, yes. Oh, Funky, man. man. I, can't, I can't remember what group used it, um, but if I pulled it up and looked it up, see, everything's so accessible now, right, Tomas? See, Tomas and I yeah. are from an era where we went to record stores. There were vinyl records everywhere. You had to get your fingers dirty. And then you had to contend with other DJs who may have already had the stuff on the original print, the original issue of it. And yet, like he said, Blue Note and other companies were reissuing things uh, later on compilations. But do you remember what it was like when you would encounter a DJ? Like, oh, just as an example, um, one of my partners in the Soul Children LA is DJ Sacred. He's a purist, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He's a purist. He didn't, he, he don't like compilations. He's like, I want the original press release of the album. It's nice that, because you, you earlier you mentioned Pointer Sisters. So yeah. it's nice because the first time I heard the sample that Gangstar used of uh, Execution of a Chump, I'm like, yeah. I heard that sample, the original on a compilation. I'm like, man, that's this is dope. But then after knowing cats like him, he wouldn't stop. He, that wouldn't be good enough for people like DJ Sacred. He would go out and find it online. He would dig and dig and dig. And this was before, you know, you could before it was in vogue to really shop online for records because, you know, it was the local record store. That's what it was there for. Mom and pop independent record stores. That's where we got our stuff. Right. But then when cats were having trouble just finding stuff in the store, that's when people started to dig online. And that's what really changed the game. Because now you yes. can get some really, really rare stuff that really nobody else has and stuff that really nobody else would care to think that was important. But the original of Execution of a Chump, of course, is a Pointer Sister song. Uh, and rest in peace to the late great June Pointer, who's from not from not too far from where you were in uh, Oakland, California. You were in the, yeah, Bay. the Bay Area. Yeah, oh, yeah man. So, so rest in peace to I, I think I said June Pointer, Anita Pointer. Uh, we just mm -hmm. lost her a few weeks ago. Uh, rest in peace. But yeah, it's stuff like that that Tomas is talking about that just drives me wild. I just love talking about this stuff, man, because you're bringing back. Well, don't forget, memories. Rome. Don't forget that at the time, all of us, so we were listening to at the time, and hip hop at that time was heavily, heavily sample based. I mean, we're talking De La Soul, a Tribe Called Quest, wow. Wu Tang, um, even Cypress Hill, and. Uh, uh, the groups that like DJ Muggs was involved with. Yeah. All these, Jungle all Brothers. these groups. Jungle Brothers. Yes. So we were being exposed to all that. And, and the game at the time was hunt down those samples that they were yep. using in their <laughs> records because your set would be exponentially more dope. Yes. You could play the original sample or even beat juggle the original sample and then go into the hip hop record that played it, you know? Wow. So, um, you know, like uh, Gangstar, just to get a rep. If you could find that, uh, I think that was the sample from that was called EVA by some yeah. like obscure, like French. John Luponti. Uh, John Luponti. Yeah, yeah. I'm <laughs> like, you know, to, to track something like that down and then right. to have doubles and to play it, like that was, you know, what, what we were all trying to do at the time. And it, you know, they say like uh, iron sharpens iron. Like we were actively sharpening each other's like, uh, Yes. skills and our knowledge so again we, we go back to the family uh aspect of what the music scene was like at the time in los angeles that that really was it and um yes. speaking of the grammys I, I have to give a shout out to the freestyle fellowship 
Yes, sir. Who are I think they're up for a Grammy, if I'm not oh, mistaken. Snap. Oh, okay. Okay. I didn't know that. I think they're up in the category of like um historical uh reissue or something like that of their first album. Wow. Um, and I really hope they win that because God yeah. knows when you talk about talent and breaking the mold, the yeah. Freestyle Fellowship definitely deserve their uh, their credit. Absolutely. You are not wrong. Freestyle Fellowship members, AC Alone and Self Jupiter, speak about their Grammy nomination releasing old and new music. This was released on uh, OKPlayer.com. You are absolutely right, DJ Tomas. See, this is what we do. Family <laughs> just looks out for each other. Uh, you are right. They are up for a Grammy this year. Who knew? Wow. That's outstanding. But yeah, just just groups like that. And then you mentioned the year 1994 when you came to a brown rice and barbecue. But remember in 1992 when the Chronic album came out by Dr. Dre? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Man, and Game everybody. Changer. Yeah, man. And so this first single was nothing but a G thing. And people were going nuts, man. I mean, Dre, he was already a super producer, but that particular track just got him so much more credibility on the east coast i mean he became epic with that particular sample and of course we cats out here who had already been digging for stuff we knew that was leon haywood we knew mm -hmm. that and so yeah. but a lot of us we may have known it but maybe some of us didn't have it in our crate at the time you know what i'm saying yeah. maybe some of us did but there was a, i would say there was an active race to to get it and again, if you were a vinyl purist like we were, you were trying to find that original album where I want to do some I want to do something freaky to you was on by Leon Haywood. Because you because yeah. that's how we were, right? The word of mouth at the time was like, hey, I know a thrift shop in in Compton, or I know a, a, a thrift shop <laughs> in North Hollywood. I know right. a thrift shop in Inglewood that that might have that record because they they just got a ship, they just got somebody just traded the records in and right. you know, I found this and I found that in it. So you should go down there. Like that was the word of mouth, you know, at the time, like, yes, we would, we would be giving each other tips and clues and, and breadcrumbs like to yes. where we could find little stashes of records, you know, wasn't, wasn't primarily just in the uh, established record stores, but the right. informal record stores played right. a big, you know, a big part of that too. So Oh, it was huge. It was huge. So, but still, we still had to find our own way, right? Because, you, you know, just the fusion of jazz and reggae, like you guys were doing, nobody was really doing that. And then there was the UCLA Jazz Festival, and then the reggae festival was on back-to-back mm -hmm. -back days on a weekend like that. But other than that, you guys were doing something pretty innovative. And uh, how long would you say before that really, really caught on? The fusion of jazz, reggae, the live band aspect, uh, sure. How would you say that influenced your career and where did it end up taking you as a DJ? All right. First, I have to give credit where credit is due. Okay. Um, in, the in the very early 90s, uh, there was a DJ. He's still around. He's still DJing. His name is Matt Robinson. Yes, sir. Los Angeles. Yes, sir. Matt Robinson did a party called Funky Reggae. Yes, sir. And then he did a party called Peace Posse. Man. And... <laughs> <laughs> Those two events were the two, I mean, he's from, he's from Philly, he's from the East Coast. So he got an early exposure to uh, cool DJ Herc and um, like DJs who were of Caribbean background, who were playing hip hop and reggae together in the same, same uh, scenario. And he just like was the first cat to play reggae 
and hip hop at one night. And and so he he's mm. really the foundation in Los Angeles for that's that sound. And I went to some of his parties and I and I just immediately said to myself, I, I found my sound. I found my sound. This is it. I have to do the same thing. So uh, at the wow. time, I already yeah, had can, reggae records. That, that, I had I'm reggae sorry for cutting you off. Yeah, but see, very few people share that. I'm gonna let you finish that thought. But Peace yeah. Posse, Tomas, that that was the one for me too because there were a lot of great events and like Psychotic Bump School is on its like 220 something episode. Matt Robinson appeared on episode like three or four. Mm. Uh, almost six years ago and we talked about that and i had to be sure to give him his props too peace posse was the one that changed the game for me too uh he did that with djp uh montel jordan fame uh a lot of stuff started with that event so yeah i didn't mean to cut you off man but that that event right there changed it for me too as well go ahead exactly and i mean it it basically if if i had a seed uh already sort of in my brain of the types of music that i liked that event helped that seed grow um and you know what i really discovered at the time is like I, I really wanted to do as many events that i could do that featured reggae or reggae and dub or dub poetry lovers rock all the different offshoots of reggae rock steady um and really find outlets for that because at the time there were really not a lot of great club nights for that type of music there were live shows for sure Mm -hmm. at venues like the music machine in santa monica and uh, a few other places uh, i think i think there was actually a club called kingston 12 in santa monica also yes indeed and um uh kind of side note um side note or nerd note however you want to know call <laughs> it um the the artist shinehead actually has yeah. inherited the kingston 12 uh collection uh sound system collection from that club and now plays out as Kingston 12 Hi-Fi. So it's just a great way that music came wow. full circle. And of course, Shinehead was one of the artists that Matt Robinson was playing at Peace Posse, you know, Shinehead mm -hmm. with his fusions of reggae and hip hop. Right. So wow. mad respect to Shinehead, who's now living in Los Angeles and doing parties in downtown LA. Like, uh, But it really gave me the, the inspiration and um, energy to, to start doing reggae parties. So Myself and a, a DJ who became a part of our Umoja Hi-Fi collective, Culture D, we yeah. started doing our own parties. Um, and they ranged from like playing reggae rooms in like rave parties in warehouses to uh, doing club nights in South LA and Hollywood. And so in between the Umoja Jazz and Raga Lounge nights and other nights that I was getting booked for, myself culture d were doing our own reggae nights like whenever we could and of course at the time um so we actually did we end up doing a night with matt i think we ended up doing a night with matt called flavor ah, uh, which was yes. yeah we uh we got linked up through a promoter named linda levy who was ah. friends with matt and um actually helped him promote peace posse mm -hmm. um and she's like had kind of heard of myself and culture d through KXLU and he's, she was like, would you like, would you guys want to be a part of this night called Flavor? And we ended up doing it. It became a very like Hollywood in crowd spot because of the Matt Robinson connection. Um, right. He's always kind of had a bit of that following. Right. And it was a, it was a super fun night. We've got to really like stretch out with all the like really raw dance hall mm -hmm. at the time. Mm -hmm. um, and by raw, I'm not talking about lyrically raw. I'm talking about, production wise like just like those kind of tunes like um 
Reggie Stepper, you know, huh. um, wow. and you know, this is the era of Shabaranks, Capleton, Shabaranks, yeah. yes. So it was a it was a really amazing time for you know the the sort of like development of dancehall music, and to be able to play parties with that just really like see a crowd go nuts for those combinations um, was was an awesome thing. And that that really just solidified, you know, what I wanted to do as a DJ. This is KCWG, the truth.com's program is called Psychotic Bump School. My name is DJ Rome. We're chopping it up with my good friend, our good brother, DJ Tomas. We are just breaking down to its final compound, the L.A. underground scene music culture, DJ culture, vinyl records culture. We're covering it all tonight. And before we let you go, man, I just want to, this is, like I said, this is Grammy weekend. And um, part of this episode, we're going to be paying tribute to the late, great Barrett Strong, who uh, recently passed away as well. One half of the uh, Norman Whitfield Barrett Strong uh, songwriting collective, Motown Records, psychedelic funk, the whole thing. And one of the things he talked about in one of his documentaries or interview, I should say, was the fact that even after he had a big hit record called Money in like 1959, which was the first hit for Motown Records, even he, Barrett Strong, even he had to leave the business because he had to support his family because it wasn't providing enough of a, a reliable income for him. And I've heard the same story throughout my lifetime. My father was a singer for his entire life. He sang for 30 years for a top 10 R&B group called The Olympics, it toured the world. But he was always a transition mechanic, excuse me, a transmission mechanic. And so Lewis Johnson, because I was talking about the Pointer Sisters earlier and that sample of um, execution of a chump by the Pointer Sisters, that's Lewis Johnson playing bass on that or the Brothers Johnson. But even his story is that too, Tomas. He always mm -hmm. had a job. He always had property. He always had real estate. And toward the latter part of his life, he was working in the guitar center. You know, yeah. so I guess what I'm asking you is that you you talked about the pandemic. Life happens. I mean, you're you're a dad now. You yeah. have a family and life has happened to all of us. How have you been able to balance this, your life, the life that's happened to you and for you? How have you been able to balance that with this love of being DJ Tomas, you know, being able to somehow be able to sustain and maintain both of them and keeping your integrity intact, brother? How have you been able to do that? Thank you for the question, because I think it's really important that we bring family and fatherhood and the other aspects of our lives into this conversation, because all musicians and DJs, artists and producers uh, have that as part of their lives as well. And yep. I think for me, um, it was really finding a balance between um, where to put your time and energy, what was important. Um, how to keep a profile in the music scene, um, but also keep your eyes and, and life in perspective on, you know, especially uh, when I had children enter my life, you know, immediately like being in the club till 2 a.m. was just not the same, uh, didn't have the same attraction as it, it had before. Um, but, you know, I always, I always balanced it by finding, um, gigs related to music that I could also earn money from. So I was a writer for a long time. Um, and I found that through writing, I could develop a profession. And, you know, I did things like write bios for artists and labels and, 
you know, um, interview other artists and, mm-hmm. you know, just, I, I had, I, you know, I had to scrape what I could buy working in record shops, writing, and, you know, sometimes having two and three jobs at a time in order to make the music career work. Yeah. And now that I, now that I have a family, um, I, I pursue music, you know, music is still always top of mind, um, next to family, but I, I definitely want to see my children grow and my, my, my relationships grow. And so incorporating it, weaving it in, um, is, is I think really the way to go. Um, so if you have children teaching your children how to DJ or how to play an instrument, Mm. um, or just listening to what music they like to listen to. So Mm. many of us DJs are know-it-alls and we think, Hey, I have to expose my kid to this music that I love. And that, that there's a time and a place for that. Mm-hmm. There's a real important time and place for listening to the music that your children like and are gravitating towards because mm-hmm. a, you might learn something and B eventually, if you foster that love for the music they love, uh, eventually they may gravitate to what you like and love as well. So that's, that's the approach I'm taking with my kids is I'm not going to force, um, you know, 1994 hip hop into your life. I'm going to listen to what you're listening to now. Right. Um, and, and try and uh, pick up on the nuances and say, hey, you know what? That song you were listening to the other day, it really kind of sounds a little bit like this group from this era. Like, why don't you check this out? And, you know, yeah. I've had the pleasure of my, like the other day, my son who lis- listens to zero hip hop discovered through like a video game show and ag you know the hip-hop group show and ag yes sir and um i was like wait a minute show and ag is on your playlist wow. we got to talk about this <laughs> so uh-huh. Uh-huh. you just start a conversation and see where it goes you know wow yeah that's how i can come back full circle because it's hard to believe that 1994 was almost 30 years ago right yeah, and yeah. things that were happening i mean wow 30 years ago, I mean, you mentioned 1994. I had to uh, take a step back for a second because that was the year we still had Fats with us for maybe the first month or two of that year before we lost him. And then we went on a long break before we came back with another brown rice and barbecue. But that was a colossal uh, setback for us back in 1994. And music back then was so special. It was so special to him as an up-and-coming photographer in the game, working, for, I think, at that time for, uh, was it Rap Pages magazine with Sheena Lester? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it was big. And you're right, you know, cats that love this business but weren't really into the mainstream of the music, man. They found a way. They found a way in this, what we call, affectionately, the underground scene, right? And there, there was something, I don't know, would you call it taboo to call our scene underground? Because sometimes people think of it as subpar, not professional, lacking uh, public notoriety or credibility. But that's the whole point in many ways, right? Because we put on some quality events during that time and beyond, wouldn't you say? So to be called underground was not um, any kind of like uh, mark of like... Um, disrespect at all because we were actively setting the trends that the mainstream market eventually was picking up on and following and all of the things that we were exposing audiences to you know don't forget as club djs Rome, yourself and myself we were playing for music industry cats and other artists and so they were subconsciously absorbing 
like the sounds and music and vibrations that we were putting down and then they would take that back and that's what became kind of the the music that inspired the A&R reps and music industry folks in Hollywood like so I give us a lot of credit being underground uh, artists and DJs and producers and promoters we played a huge role in the development of the music scene in LA at the time and um, absolutely you know you 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 could bring up a name like uh, the Dust Brothers who mm. you know produced a lot of records for Delicious Vinyl they were out in the clubs that we were playing at mm-hmm. hearing the music and samples that we were playing and then you know looking for those things themselves and then making records with those things. And so were a lot of other producers at the time. So the mm. underground was probably the most important force in all of music at the time in the 1990s in LA. Man, and may it live on forever. You know what I'm saying? Well, and I don't hear one bit of waning off of the passion that you have for this scene, this music. Uh, you've been a real one forever, man. I can't thank you enough for uh, having this conversation, man. It's just, uh, I don't even want it to end because it's, it's so nostalgic <laughs> for me. It's its home, man. It's its bittersweet because, you know, we've lost a lot of people uh, in this time. And it, it's been hard, you know, with DJ Dust being gone now, Al Jackson being gone now, Fats being gone now, and countless others, right? I mean, it, it's it's been a tough time for all of us. But to know that that thread and that spirit is still there. And it'll live on, you know, so long as there's people as you and myself to kind of preserve the integrity of what this scene has meant to us and what it's done for us. uh, It it captures all the essences for me. So I just want to thank you for sharing this scene with me and uh, allowing me to participate in it with you. It's been a joy, man. Uh, Any final thoughts for you? What's coming up next for you? Do you have any upcoming gigs you can tell us about? Well, first, I want to. Yeah, go ahead. First, Jerome, I want to thank you for your show and this opportunity to speak with you because uh, I think this is a really great opportunity to kind of relay some of the history of that period of time in music. And um, yeah. um, also, uh, I want to say that uh, I was honored to be both a peer of Al Jackson and of Derek Fats and uh, and all the Soul Children and also have you guys as my inspiration because I couldn't really do the some of the things that i did without your inspiration and your um events and music so so big respects to uh yourself and the crew and especially those who have passed on because uh they live they definitely live on in my thoughts and music that i play to this day and will never be forgotten ever um in terms of like what's going on with myself at at the present day um I still do have a huge, huge, huge passion for music and um, all kinds of new genres. And, and of course, the music genres that I'm into uh, mm-hmm. at my core. So I continue to collect records. I continue to um, listen to music all the time, um, DJ when I can. Um, mm-hmm. I'm going to be playing a gig in Long Beach in March. This was through some cats who moved to Vegas who I met years prior in LA in the music scene and we're like hey I'm starting up this reggae night in Vegas do you want to come out and play it and I was like Mm. I would love to see what that's all about so you know these threads continue to be strong and the connections can continue to be strong and I hope I can uh, continue to share music with the public as long as I can in like different capacities but um, yeah that's what's going on 
That's what's up. Uh, what's the best way for people to uh, keep in touch with you, find your work, find your projects, and uh, keep in tabs with what's going next with you, DJ Tomas? Well, um, I think one of the best ways is to look up our DJ collective, which is Umoja Hi-Fi. And Umoja Hi-Fi has profiles on all the different social media outlets. So Instagram, SoundCloud, YouTube, Facebook, et cetera. And, um, you know, from there you can interact with me. I'm always checking those, those sites too, or just look up DJ Tomas SF. I'm on Instagram there. And, uh, yeah, I'd love to connect with anybody who has memories of this time period or, um, you know, who I, uh, Oh, I, I got to give one, one quick last shout. And that's uh, yeah, our, our DJ collective, our DJ collective, Umoja Hi-Fi celebrated our 30th anniversary as yes. a crew this past year. Um, and we did it, we did a night in downtown Los Angeles. It was a super wonderful experience. And um, yes, if you, if you are able to check us out in Los Angeles, we'll be doing other gigs upcoming in the future as a collective. And um, the cats in our collective are DJ Daz, Mona Lisa, Aaron Parr, DJ June, Culture D, and myself. So we're six people, six members. Co uh, DJ King Cockney or Cockney O'Dyer was a, a big part of our crew for a long time. He's now like doing his own solo things and he's doing amazing. I got to say he's down in Dallas and New Orleans doing amazing works down there mm. um, in a band doing his own club nights, like just incredible works. So much props to King Cockney. Yeah. Um, but we, we as a DJ collective continue to play nights. And I think that's all, where my soul and my heart really lies is in doing uh, events with our collective. And um, we have our fingers crossed that one day we can do another soul children meets Umoja um, in Los Angeles. And yeah. that'd be just the biggest joy of my life and props to all the soul children crew sacred and, um and everyone in the crew man god bless you man juju moja remember that, that yes was that was it man we we set it yeah. off man love your crew too man everybody and uh shouts out to the soul children as he said dj tomas you're a real one man thanks for being here fam okay okay thank you rome um i appreciate the opportunity and and to you and your listeners have a very blessed uh rest of your weeks indeed this is Al Jackson, a.k.a. Al Jax 3. This is John Myers, a.k.a. Third Son. And this is Christy Lomax. And, and we're the Trilaterals. And you're listening to Psychotic Bump School with your host, DJ Rome, on KCWG, thetruth.com. The best internet radio station on the planet. The best things in life are free, but you can give them to the We're back. KCWG, the truth.com. This program is called Psychotic Bump School. My name is DJ Rome. 
And ladies and gentlemen, you know how we do. Every once in a while, we just gotta stop the press. We just gotta stop the press, stop the cap. Sometimes this is so bittersweet, but at the same time, it's, it's extremely important that we uh, just stop the music and give a salute. Uh, another giant has passed in the music business, and you know how we do, y'all. We got to bring the guy on to talk about it. And I'm not even going to say who passed away. If you see the headline of this show or post, you already know. But I'm going to let this brother get to it. Y'all know this brother. He's a legendary music journalist out of Southern California. He's a drummer. The good brother does it all. And I am so happy to have him here back on this program. So ladies and gentlemen, please help me welcome back to Psychotic Bump School, our good brother, Mr. A. Scott Galloway. Mr. Galloway, are you back? I am back. How are you, sir? Oh man, I'm good to go. Appreciate you, man. Man, we lost another big one. I mean, people don't yeah. even realize how big this one is. Can you tell us uh, who we're about to talk about this time, good brother? We are gonna talk about Mississippi to Detroit transplant became one of the greatest, most important songwriters in Motown history, let alone just soul music history and pop music history. And that is Mr. Barrett Strong. Barrett Strong. Yes, sir. Mr. Galloway, um, what happened to Mr. Barrett Strong? Can you tell us a little bit about who he is before we get deep into the specifics? Who is Barrett Strong and why are we talking about him this time? Uh, but we lost Barrett Strong last week, I believe, um, uh, early in the week. He was 81 years old. Uh, he's a Motown legend. He had the very first major hit of any significance on the Tamla Motown label. And that song was Money, That's What I Want. There's been discrepancies about who actually wrote the song. I think the actual... Copyright belongs to Barry Gordy and Janie Bradford, but uh, there is some uh, argument out there that Barrett, whose name I think appeared on the very first pressings or whatever, uh, did contribute to that song, if for no other area than in the piano playing. It was very mm -hmm. heavily influenced by Ray Charles, and so you can definitely hear a Ray Charles vibe in that song. Absolutely. So, you know how it is. So many, so many people in the industry, no matter how far back you go or you can come right up to today. Sometimes you come in, you pay your dues, you don't know everything and you kind of get hoodwinked and bamboozled a little taste, you know, uh, it's kind of part of the initiation. And I think that might have been what happened to Barrett. But, you know, he 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 came into Motown primarily as an artist who mm -hmm. also wrote songs Um and uh, I just got a collection. There's like 22 songs that he recorded for Motown uh, the whole time he was there. Half of those never were released, um, mm -hmm. but, you know, they sat in the vault. And uh, he never really had another hit that came anywhere near close to um, Money, That's What I Want. And if he had been just a recording artist, we would probably be looking back at him as only having that one significant milestone of having the first big Motown hit. And then he would have been probably considered a one-hit wonder. But no, Barrett Strong was an amazing songwriter and musician. He ended up teaming up with Norman Whitfield, who was also at Motown. And uh, had, he had done a few things. But when they teamed up together, it was on. I mean, they went on to, to compose some of the most important songs 
uh, that kind of changed the direction of of Motown, or or at least created a whole nother subdivision that uh, we now know today as psychedelic soul. Mm. Uh, the first big hit that they had together was Cloud Nine by The Temptations, which also happens to be since this is Grammy week for those who care. Um, the very first Grammy winning song for Motown Records was Cloud Nine by The Temptations, nineteen eight. And uh, and you know they you know they end up writing a, a whole lot of different things that that took Motown into new directions and start thinking about songs like Heard It Through the Grapevine, first recorded by Gladys Knight and the Pips, and then slowed down and funked up and made a whole nother hit by Marvin Gaye. They wrote War originally for The Temptations on their psychedelic Shack album. Paul Williams was the lead singer. Nothing happened with that, but they then turned around and put it on Brother Edwin Starr, and it became uh, not Edwin's only hit, but certainly his biggest, most significant one, very major record of 1970 chron chronicling what was going down with the Vietnam War, and people kind of, you know, having had enough of that. War, what is it good for? Um, mm. You know, so, you know, a whole string of things for the Temptations, man. Psychedelic Shack, Can't Get Next to You, Don't Let the Joneses Get You Down, uh, all the way up through uh, their last major uh, record together, that being Derek Strong and Norman Whitfield, uh, before they parted ways, which was Papa Was a Rolling Stone for the mm. Temptations. After Eddie Kendricks and Paul Williams departed, and you had Richard Street and Damon Harris in the band, uh, I should say in the group, joining Otis Williams, Melvin Franklin, and uh, the also pretty recently added Dennis Edwards, who took David Ruffin's place. Oh, so Papa Was a Rolling Stone, ironically, the second Grammy-winning song for Motown Records. So Temptations had the first two Grammy winners, and Norman Whitfield and Barrett Strong as a team were the writers of those, those songs. But, you know, Barrett was incredible, I, I, as, I'm, as I'm sure you know, he, he wrote other things for the Dells, Stay in My Corner. He yeah, was a co-writer as well on I Wish It Would Rain, which is another early Temptations thing. Um, just phenomenal. Um, I guess the last thing I'll say before I just let you ask questions or whatever is that, um, you know, he was very versatile. You know, he, he could write, you know, some of the most beautiful, tender love songs, you know, including Just My Imagination. And he could also write things that were that were steering uh, socio-political commentary. And like I said, Norman Whitfield co-writing with him and, and producing the uh, the Funk Brothers to deliver some serious rock-infused funk soul. You know, um, they 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 were just they were something else as a team. And mm -hmm. uh, it's it's a shame that they they didn't last. But you know, Barrett after he kind of broke apart from Whitfield, and let's get a timeline here. They basically did most of their writing together for four years, nineteen sixty eight through 1972 and then Barrett parted ways and, and tried to be a recording artist again didn't really work out very well for him it, it looks like you know he really did need somebody like a Norman Whitfield to uh you know at least have a hit making sound you know, he could write good songs but he never really had the right sound to have hit records uh in the era when he continued to try in the 70s and I believe early 80s um, but it takes nothing away from his writing. It was absolutely wonderful. And I'm sure that he probably didn't even need to be an artist 
you know, after that string of things that he wrote for Motown, because I'm sure money continued to pour in. I mean, no songs were recorded by other people, including the Rolling Stones, um, like I said, Gladys Knight and the Pips. Uh, Al Green redid Can't Get Next to You and almost made it a whole nother version. <laughs> you know, I mm -hmm. mean, you know, the brother was just, um, it's really amazing. Uh, and I had I had the opportunity to interview him once over the over the telephone. It took quite some negotiating because he was already kind of incognito and his health his started to fail. They wouldn't let me see him in person, but I interviewed him several years ago when I thought I was going to be doing a book project on one of the Temptations albums. Um, it didn't it didn't happen, but I really am not but hurt about that at all because just having the opportunity to talk to him for a couple of hours was magical as the temptations were my second favorite group in my entire life I used to bounce around my bedroom singing all the different you know members parts and uh, the era that i so loved more than anything with the temptations was that era when david ruffin split dennis edwards came in norman whitfield became the producer and whitfield strong that is norman whitfield baird strong became their primary almost soul um writing uh, team and mm. uh, amazing amazing run what what stands out for you as far as i mean i know you had a chance to talk to him over the phone that must have been an amazing experience but and oh wow i'm just seeing that uh yeah he actually just had a birthday too he was born on february 5th oh my god well yeah so, he missed that one. Oh, he oh he sure did he felt just oh man crazy yeah. crazy crazy yeah. just fell short of his oh man um any song, I mean, all those songs that you talked about, uh, and I was shocked to hear that it was just a four-year period when he was writing all that really, really bomb music with Norman Whitfield. Norman was producing, of course, and, you know, all that stuff I'm I'm finding out was Barrett. He was right. He had the pen. He was yeah. writing lyrics. He was writing Psychedelic Shack. He was writing War. He was writing I Heard It Through the Grapevine. That's Barrett Strong. There was both of them. I mean, you know, they both, okay. you, know, you know, they both contributed. They, they were a unique um, uh, do, uh, songwriting partnership because I think they both did both things. Although Norman was more of a, a dictator as far as what he wanted mm -hmm. musically, he couldn't really play um, instruments that much, but he knew exactly to the detail what he wanted every instrument to do uh, in an arrangement of anything that that he wrote and produced, you know, from the trumpet to the violin to the drum, yeah. the guitars, everything. He was like that. Barrett could play the hell out of the piano. Right. And they both wrote lyrics. And so um, they, they were a pretty great team together. Absolutely. And, and sometimes, you know, like, you know, in the case of I, I Wish It Would Rain, there was another cat that actually started that song, uh, Roger yeah. And he ended up committing suicide uh, shortly after he wrote that song. He was truly heartbroken. Yeah. And, you know, so I think in that case, he had an idea and it had the the basis of a, a song about, you know, wishing it would rain and uh, because he, you know, didn't want people to see him crying. And then, uh, you know, Barrett Strong and Norman Whitfield tightened it up and um, and completed it. I think the same thing goes for Stay in My Corner, which uh, Barrett has a co-writer wow. Uh, with two other writers that are not Norman Whitfield's not involved in that at all, right? And so you know, things you know, writers get together as you well know, and uh, they try different things. And some some writers they really click with, some they don't. Sometimes they really click on just one particular idea, or they're they, you know they bring in that missing 
puzzle piece that the other writers couldn't get and mm. uh and then they get themselves on you know on the publishing and, uh, and they get a, a piece of the song because they contributed something significant to its completion right okay well you you spoke to the man a scott galloway you spoke yes. to the man and given that you like many of us who are listening grew up on his music what greater appreciation did you gain about songs that you probably got more in depth about when you actually talked to the man himself you know i heard through the grapevine had like nine lives <laughs> yeah and I, I don't know if to this date there's one single that has sold as many records for a time that was the biggest selling single of all time because of the many different iterations that it went through just from motown artists you know it was first uh well was it did marvin do Great fun. Gladys, 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 Gladys did it first with that Latin beat. Thing. Yeah, you know, they yeah. had the whole breakdown, and then Marvin they slowed it down, and Marvin mm. did his thing with it, and then um, then Roger Freedom's Clearwater Revival had it. Oh with snap! It. The Temptations also recorded it, not as a single. It was on the Cloud Nine album. Okay. And yeah, yeah, Roger. Roger I mean, it wasn't Motown, but Roger Troutman. Oh like, yeah. Yeah, it's great. I mean, come on. And they became a commercial for a reason. So, you know, the thing with Buddy Miles singing and, and you know, and commercials, that's a whole nother level of cha-ching. So, um, wow. yeah, the California Raisins, and which the lead voice, uh -huh. the great Buddy Miles for that. But oh, yeah, wow. Barrett, you know, I think he also um, early in his life had some aspirations to the ministry. Um, and so that speaks a little bit to the message songs that he had you know they had a lot of things that were thought provoking like don't let the Joneses get you down and and uh friendship train another one that um mm. that was recorded by quite a few people at motown it was just it was a motown thing i mean that wasn't just endemic to um barrett strong and norman whitfield a lot of the the songwriters had their songs recorded multiple times by several different artists on the roster uh, it helped, you know, all the publishing was going through Joe Bett, uh, which Barry Gordy owned. So, you know, mm -hmm. it was just another way of keeping the the, the um, money in-house. And Norman Whitfield, probably more than some of the others, really, really uh, took advantage of that, you know, getting his songs. I mean, he was, you know, he was good at coming up with different ways of having the song oh, done. Like yeah. Smiling Faces sometimes, you know, Smiling Faces is another Barrett Strong and Whitfield song. Made famous by the Undisputed Truth, but it was also recorded by the Temptations. Uh, did Barrett, during your conversation with Barrett, uh, what, if any, reference did he make to Standing in the Shadows of Motown? Because that was about the unsung heroes of uh, the Motown phenomenon. Uh, did you have a chance to hear anything about that era and how, what his take on it was as far as that tribute to the Funk Brothers? I'm sure he deeply appreciated it because all of those musicians, you know, played on his record, you know, um, three guitarists, uh, Eddie Willis. And um, oh, my goodness, I'm, I'm, I'm spacing out on the names. Uh, yeah. Messina, oh, the Jim wrote, Messina, Eddie yes, Willis. Yes, Messina and the cat and, Robert uh, Bell, Robert something. Uh, uh, no, uh, Dennis Coffey was the guy that came in. He was he was also very key to that psychedelic soul era because yes. he is the one who brought in the special effects that uh, yeah. the brothers and the, the guitar players were not using at that time he's the one that brought in the wah-wah pedal the cry baby and different things on that cloud nine and um yeah so it was it was a really seriously changing time i don't remember i probably did ask we probably did talk a little bit about 
that, but in all honesty, and I can't say which album because I'm going to be doing something with it, but I was really straight up focused on, you know, uh, one particular album when I was talking to Barrett. And we talked about a, a few general things as well, but, you know, uh, there was one album that I that I took him through top to bottom. Mm. And whenever that piece comes out, because I'm one of the, I think I'm, I'm not the only, I'm sure, but I am one of the only journalists that ever got an opportunity to interview both Norman Whitfield and Barrett Strong in their later years. Mm. And, you know, I interviewed them separately, of course. And uh, I mean, Norman Whitfield was notorious, you know, he, he wasn't doing interviews. And when he did do it, if he did do one, he was asking for a lot of money to be interviewed. But I think you had mm. to pay him by by the 15 minutes or something like that and it was pretty outrageous i didn't have to pay him and barrett strong his family you know um you know like i said it took some negotiating but they finally made him available to me via phone not in person and uh, and i wasn't exaggerating when i said on facebook by the time we were finished because they were sitting in on the interview they learned things that they didn't even know about their uncle their father grandfather whatever you know mm. you know so it was it was it was great. So I'm very honored wow. to have those those interviews, and um, you know they'll be coming out in another context shortly. But wow. yeah, all I can say is with Barrett being a musician himself, I'm sure that he was very empathetic to what happened to those guys and how hard they worked and how little recognition they received. Um, you know, it's probably the same thing reason why he left Motown. You know, and went to Epic Records and a couple of other record companies. You know, trying in vain to uh, be seen as an artist, uh, which he you know, considered himself in his mind. But the other thing I will say to Barry Gordy's credit, and so many people have said this, is that one of his greatest gifts uh, was that he could see the strength in other people. If somebody came to his company and they were just, you know, a valet, uh, you know, parking cars or, or driving people, artists here to there, spent a certain amount of time with them, he could say, you know what, you're really good. I can tell you, you'd be really good at <clears throat> such and such. You know, the way you turn a phrase, you'd be a good songwriter. Or, or the way you do it, I mean, it wouldn't even just be about songs. Barry Gordy has been said to have just had a really keen eye for looking at somebody and pretty quickly assessing the things or the kind of things that they should be doing and that they'd be most successful in in life. And so, you know, I would not put it past Barry to have seen that Barrett had a strength um, in writing that was greater than his strength as a singer. But mm -hmm. but I also understand that Barrett left Motown for a while and then came back with Whitfield. So it might have been Whitfield who really uh, saw the, the strength or leaned on that because he became his partner as a songwriter, but Barry too, because, you know, Barry's the one that had him, you know, singing, you know, that record that became the first big record for Motown. I'm sure he he saw something in him as well. Because again, Barry, you know, Barry didn't have any other hits on Motown, but, you know, Barry Gordy probably saw some potential in him as a writer. But <clears throat> now that I have talked this out, I think that it was really Norman Whitfield that, not only saw it, but supported it, works with them, and they turned out to be a great team together. Yeah. Well, we've heard so much because we also recently paid tribute here to uh, the late, great Lamont Dozier. And so when you think about songwriting tandems from Motown, 
I think first and foremost about Holland, Dozier Holland, then maybe Ashford and Simpson to a certain degree. Yeah, they, and, they, they came from New York and then they, and went to, to Motown, mm-hmm. went to Detroit specifically to write songs for Motown Records, but mm-hmm. they didn't really come up. They had already been a team before right. they went to Motown and, um, and, and nobody, oh. even Stevie Wonder would have missed that they were a great writing team and that they should be there. Okay, okay. I see the distinction there because it's, yeah. it's actually the Whitfield strong thing that you said it, you know, a little while ago. That was my favorite tandem. Yeah. Uh, one that I mentioned because it was so funky. I mean, the things that they were doing with lead vocalist Dennis, uh, oh my God. Edwards. <laughs> Thank you. Dennis Edwards. I mean, not only just the Grammy nominations and wins, you know, putting Motown onto an entirely different plateau with Cloud Nine and then a couple years later with Papa Was a Rolling Stone. I mean, just iconic grooves, man. And then it was that tandem between he and Whitfield. Uh, did he go into, I don't know what happened to their relationship when, you know, because you said it was a four-year period that was really fertile for them, right? It was yeah. like war, you know, grapevine, undisputed truth. And by the way, ladies and gentlemen, if you dig deep into the archives of Psychotic Bum School, uh, Scott and I, well, I'm, I'm a credit Scott because he introduced me to, uh, don't they call him Big Joe Harris? Joe Pep Harris. Joe Pep Harris. Joe Pep Harris, the lead vocalist of what group? The Undisputed Truth. Yes, sir. Smiling faces sometimes. A. Scott Galloway brought Big Joe Pep Harris to Psychotic Bum School. So that interview is in the archive as well. But wasn't what did Barrett happen to say about those years, maybe the separation? Was it amicable? It may be too personal for him to talk about at that time by the time you met him. But what happened in what created the separation between he and Whitfield? Was it a personal thing or just a business transaction? No, I I think broadly speaking uh, that, you know, uh, he he did very well to work that closely with Whitfield for as long as he did because Whitfield was a very strong personality, and um, you know I had kind of uh, alluded to that when I said that you know uh, Norman Whitfield he, he was more of a dictator of parts you know he he knew exactly what he wanted in his head so I think that in those times when he was working with them that Barrett more times than not probably had to you know, compromise and and go along with, you know, what Whitfield wanted. Um, and there might have been, you know, some arguments and some disagreements about, you know, songs, um, direction or lyrics or, or whatever. But because Norman Whitfield was a very strong personality, he would usually get his way. That, and I imagine, and I'm scanned, I'm speaking very broadly, that uh, Barrett probably, you know, after a certain amount of time had had enough of that, and um, you know, wanted to go off and do some some things on his own. Um, the general consensus would be that hey, you know, Norman Whitfield went on to still do lots more great stuff with the Temptations, and he started his own record company, and he had Rolls Royce, and uh, which you know yeah. blew up with the Car Wash soundtrack, and they had yes. several other hit records. Um, he had Starguard, he had you know several mm. other groups. A lot of them didn't do well. And he also took a few artist from Motown. I think he had Junior Walker for a little while. He took the Undisputed uh-huh. Truth as well. Uh, so Whitfield, you know, was more of that kind of a businessman. And, um, and you know, like I said, not everything that he did struck gold, but, you know, right. a lot of stuff that he did did strike gold. So 
Man. And the other thing that they had, Barrett, Barrett and uh, and Whitfield, uh, they used to call that partnership, like you'd say, Ashford and Simpson. In the industry, they called their partnership Whitfield Strong. You know, yes, uh, they they were also um, very instrumental in in having the white rock group Rare Earth. Yes, and, and, and that group, you know, having success with uh, several of the songs that uh, they wrote, and and, and more so Whitfield, because you know Whitfield took them under his wing, and and that was that. But you know, they started off with some Whitfield Strong records, and then Whitfield continued on with them. And they did a lot of other stuff. Hey, Big Brother and Ma. And again, stuff that the Temptations recorded as well. Uh, but somebody, you know, even Undisputed Truth, he just, you know, <laughs> he just whipped those yeah. songs around all the different cats and and, and somebody was going to get a hit with it. Bruh, I'm a, <laughs> in fact, um, I'm going I'm to toss it right back to you because you're making me think about some stuff, man. Rare Earth, for one. But before I do that, if y'all haven't heard uh, Scott's right. Norman Whitfield went on and did uh, his own record label, Whitfield Records. And yes, he yep. did sign uh, Rolls Royce. Uh, he signed The Undisputed Truth, too. But Scott just named somebody that did a beautiful album with a cover of I'm Wishing on a Star. And that was Junior Walker. He did mm -hmm. an instrumental version with his saxophone brother. Ladies and gentlemen, if you haven't heard it, it is absolutely beautiful. It's a showstopper for that album. I have that album. And yeah. I was shocked to find it in a record bin. I didn't, I'm like, for years, I didn't know that Junior left and went to Whitfield Records. I don't know if he just did that one album. No, he did a few. He did a few? Did okay. A few. It was awesome. And then Scott just mentioned a rock group called Rare Earth. They have an, they have, I mean, Ma, <laughs> M-A, y'all, Ma, that, that's like a hood slang for mother. <laughs> and. And was it? I think the t I heard the Temptations do it first. Rare Earth named their whole album called Ma. Yep. And it was talk to us about Keith, man. <laughs> and talk a whole lot about Rare Earth. Um, but they, you know, um, they were they played Cal Jam. You know that same big Los Angeles, um, well, out in the desert uh, concert that Earth Wind and Fire and several other groups performed. I was like, you know, rock bands and. And uh, I think Mother's Finest might have been the only other black band on that bill. But yeah, Rare Earth was a, was a part of the, the big Cal Jam concert. Um, and again, they, they were uh, another experimental offshoot for Motown, you know, rolling the dice. And mm. as Motown did with a lot of different concepts and a lot of them didn't work. But Rare Earth um, did work. And they were probably one of the only acts on Motown to get played fairly regularly on white rock radio for obvious reasons. Um, right. But, um, but they did. And, uh, and yeah. they, and that was, you know, to Motown's credit, they did have a rock band that, you know, it went down in history. Great songs. My favorite one of their songs is called Hey Big Brother. That was a good rock. Mm. Funky tune, you know? Wow. Man, when we started this conversation, I did not know we were going to be talking about rare earth, but it makes sense. Right. Oh um, yeah. The Ma album, if you have not heard Ma by Rare Earth, because the Temptations just killed the song. Nobody needed to touch it after that. But then, you know, in true Whitfield strong fashion, they they reflipped it. They just like they remixed it and they had a new band playing it. They had these white cats called Rare Earth and they killed it. They absolutely killed it. So the Ma album, y'all. Um and speaking of, I mean, and that just indicates just the the reach that they have because I was shocked to know about the the Dells connection with Stay in My Corner. I didn't know that was Barrett Strong, bro. I did not know. Yeah. 
like I said, he's one of he's one of three writers on that song, and I don't know what percentage of the tune he wrote or what part of the song he wrote, but he is credited as one of the three writers. And uh, so, wow, beautiful. I, I, didn't, I didn't ask him about that particular song. Right, I focused on a particular thing. Right, when right. I interviewed him, yeah. I mean, but Rare Earth is one, but the song, the song "Money" I'm seeing is covered by the Rolling Stones, the Beatles, Led Zeppelin, the Kingsmen. Uh, Jerry Lee Lewis got a crack at it, and a very psychedelic, rare band called Flying Lizards. I actually have an album by the Flying Lizards, man. They had a funky little sound too. Um, I think those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that was that was in the new wave era. You know, they they uh, they flipped that. But again, remember, Barry didn't write that. That one uh, officially okay. is credited. Yes. Although he probably had a hand in it, he was not credited. Right. But yeah, that one was credited to Barry Gordy and uh, Janie Bradford. Yeah, bless their heart. So you said, um, I, I know I'm not going to keep you too much longer, but by the time you met Mr. Strong, um, his take on the music industry and how he was treated or did he did he feel like he had got his just dues? Did he seem content where he was and what his contribution was? Because it's absolutely tremendous what he's done. Uh, what was your sense of how he felt about what he had contributed to this thing called music? I think he probably felt a lot like Hal David did with Burt Backrack. You know, everybody always talks about Burt Backrack, and everybody always talks about Norman Whitfield because they were like the composers. They were, or they were, they were considered to be the composers slash producers of the music, and and people didn't really want to talk too much. I mean, you know, they they just always talked about them and their Midas touch as opposed to it really including. Uh, the other partner. And in the case of Bert Backrack and Hal David, you know, Hal David was very much the lyricist and, and Bert was the music guy. Like I said, with, with Whitfield and Strong, it was kind of a combination. But because Whitfield was the producer and also because he really did have a very, very strong personality, um, you know, to the point where, you know, like once he was, it was all about him and, and Bert Strong was, was out of the picture. The very next Temptations album was called Masterpiece. And there was a wow. picture of Norman Whitfield on the back yes. of the Masterpiece album that was bigger than the yes. Temptations picture yes. themselves. You know, right. and and uh and you know Otis Williams and Dennis Edwards talk about that in their books, saying that you know Norman really got out of hand. And there were, you know, people used to call the Temptations like the Norman Whitfield players, like you know, they just did whatever Norman, you know, Norman you know, produce songs and there'd be, they'd be 13 minutes long and the temp would be on it for four minutes and then there'd be like the rest of it was all instrumental, you know, masterpiece. It was funky though. Wasn't it, it funky? Was funky. <laughs> yeah, Papa was a Rolling Stone, same thing. I mean, you know, yep. they were doing that stuff, you know, kind of stretching out like jazz and, uh, yeah. and also stretching out um, for people's, you know, black folks were getting some money around that time period, you know, starting to come into our own in the business world and just, you know, making more money than we used to and having um, nice stereo systems and headphones and quadraphonic. So he was really getting into making records that sounded incredible on a sound system, which then made, you know, consumers want to spend more money on their sound systems, whether it be in their home or in their cars. You know? mm. Wow. That's incredible. Well, um, this is why we're celebrating. Um, Ladies and gentlemen, I mean, Barrett Strong, I mean, you, you don't realize how deep your crates go. 
in your uh, collections at home. If you're of age enough where you still got some vinyl pieces from your, your, your mama and your grandmama's record collection, grandpa too, don't get it twisted. But mm. ladies and gentlemen, I mean, this guy, I, I can't say enough. I mean, Psychotic Bump School is a, a variety show, ladies and gentlemen. And you could just go through this body of work that Barrett Strong has written, Ball of Confusion, Psychedelic Shack, just talking about war. We just had a balloon shot down over the United States of America because Chinese, uh, the Chinese government was floating balloons and they just shot down a balloon. And so these, these preliminary war games that are happening today, the war in Ukraine with, you know, Vladimir Putin and Russia and all that. I mean, Barrett Strong was writing about this stuff way back in the 60s with Vietnam. And that served as the backdrop and inspiration for a lot of the songs that he wrote. And of course, the tragic story of his friend, like Scott said, who was uh, really, really sad over a breakup. And um, fortunately, he took his own life, tragically. And uh, I wish it would rain. Uh, just feels different. It hits entirely different now, just knowing that story. And so I found something uh, before we let Scott go. Barrett Strong gave us money. It was a little documentary. It's not a documentary, it's just an interview of uh, Barrett Strong. If you want to get deeper into the man, uh, I found it on YouTube. Barrett Strong gave us money. It's about an hour and five minutes. Fascinating stuff. I have to tell you, the sound on it is not very good, but it is a great interview. And you get to hear from the man, the myth himself, Barrett Strong. He goes into a lot of the things that Scott is talking about, and you get to hear it from his own voice. Scott, of course, was able to hear these things firsthand in an interview with him. And I suspect you don't want to tip your hand too much because you said it's part or it could be part of an upcoming project you have pending. So uh, before we land the plane, good brother, uh, I just want to thank you once again. I mean, every time we do this, man, of course, it's bittersweet, but I can't think of anybody else who would do it as eloquently as yourself. Barrett Strong, uh, A. Scott Galloway. Uh, what can you tell us about the project you kind of alluded to? Is it something that wasn't a work and was kind of tabled for a little bit? Are you still planning to share more about that when it's a more appropriate time? Uh, what's next in the, the canon of covering Barrett Strong's story in life that uh, you possibly could be a part of? Well, I'm, I'll probably end up doing something on my own that puts the, the Whitfield interview that I did and the Barrett Strong interview that I did together uh, to a certain degree. Um, I was originally talking to Barrett for a book project. Um, there was a company I think called, that had a series of books called 33 and a Third. Uh, and they, uh, you know, they put out quite a few things. Um, one of my colleagues, Amy, oh my goodness, Amy Lord, I think. Uh, yeah. yeah. Anyway, she got, she got one out there and there's another friend of mine, Don Breisbart, that did one, I believe, on Steely Dan. Amy did one on Donny Hathaway, though, and she liberally used from um, the liner note essays that I wrote on Donny because mm. I that a lot of those folks were still alive. By the time she was writing her book, they were gone. Mm. Her name is Emily Lordy, yes. and uh, but she got to do a book on Donny Hathaway live, and uh, so I was going to do a book on on a on a, a record that uh, Eric Strong and Norman Whitfield were. You know, the songwriters for. Can you say her name again? Emily what? Emily Lordy, L-O-R-D-I. Got it. And uh, so there was a, a, a series of books. I don't think they're doing them anymore. Otherwise, I would still be trying to pitch the book that I uh, was going to do. Um, they called the series 33 and a third. And, you know, they hired a lot of writers to do. Um, basically, they're supposed to focus on one album 
by an artist. I know with Emily, she kind of did, you know, she almost talked about every single album that Hathaway did. And of course, there were only four or five in his lifetime. Um, a live album and three studio records. And then, you know, the album with Roberta Flack. Uh, she she went through all of those. Uh, but generally, I think most of the those books were, were intended to be about one album and its incredible impact on on the industry or or, or whatever was special about that mm. oh yeah so that that's what i was doing i'm not going to say which album i was doing okay but, um <clears throat> yeah that so i don't know i don't think that company's doing those books anymore so i will have to to do something else with that interview but i will also say this in closing to any aspiring writers out there particularly music journalists please take any and every opportunity you get to interview people, particularly those of age, um, of some age, because um, I'll tell you, I can't tell you how many times somebody that I approached, uh, you know, might have said, they, they might have been reluctant at first to give me an interview because they said, oh, I'm going to write my own life story. <clears throat> and of course, nine times out of 10, they never get, they never do that. And then they're gone. And um, I'm, I'm going to be taking a look at this uh, Barrett Strong project that you talked about, Rome, but um, I'm sorry that the audio wasn't good on it, but I'm still going to check it out because these things are important. You know, it's important to talk, yeah. to, it's to talk to these people, get their stories, get them at a time when they're comfortable, get them at a time when they're not busy and they can just really sit down, relax and tell you their stories. Why? Because even those who love them most, said with the Barrett Strong interview, you know, they might love their uncle to death. They don't know how to interview their uncle and really get stories out of him that they need. You know, um, his own, Barrett's family was learning things about him that they didn't know when I interviewed him. And uh, and now, sadly, he's gone. I mean, I think I did my interview with Barrett Strong five years ago, so I don't know what they did. Mm. Might have been even a little earlier than that. Uh, definitely no more than eight years. But um, it's important. To get to to get these things and uh you know be upfront be purposeful like i said i had a very specific purpose of why i was interviewing mr strong i got him i went through all the negotiations and uh and then you know the the book it can work but i still have this interview and it's valuable and you know so whatever you're doing out there i mean now it's the 50th anniversary of hip-hop there's probably a lot of folks a lot of hip hop artists, rap artists that aren't the big ones, that are not Chuck D, Ice T, Tribe Called Quest, whatever, but some somebody out there, some ghost writer, go go talk to the ghost writer who wrote for Black Sheep, or you know, find these people mm. and get their stories. I don't even think there's a, a hip hop magazine anymore. I mean, we used to have the Source, and we used to have several different ones. I'm kind of rambling here, but my basic point is, you know, if you know somebody out there. That um, is older, has a lot of history, and nobody's really talking to them. And every day that goes by, they're just at home doing whatever, and nobody's getting their story. You be the one to get that story. Do your homework, go interview that person, negotiate with the family, whatever you have to do, and uh, and and get those stories, man. Because once people are gone, they're gone. Man, you said a word right there, good brother. That's A. Scott Galloway. And um, I can't thank you enough, man. You're so right. It's so important to, to talk to these cats and ladies while they're with us, because once they're gone, that that's it's it. 
That's it. And just little tidbits, you just he, he said many times that his own family didn't know the the depth and the range and gravity of what he had done. His own family members, ladies and gentlemen. And it's so easy to take it for granted because to them it was just Barry or Barry, whatever they call him, you know. But right. to us, to us out here, to the layperson that grew up on his stuff. I mean, you you just can't replace that legacy. He went on to talk about, and we're, we're going to land the plane right now, but we would, he went on to talk about in that documentary how he went on to work with people like, uh, he may have, I don't know if you work with them, but he may have crossed paths at some point with uh, late singer Major Lance. And of course, Major Lance is the father of former mayor of Atlanta, Keisha Lance Bottoms. And mm-hmm. it, there's there's so much history there. And these unsung heroes that Scott is talking about, I had to look this up before I let you go because I was trying to think of who that third guitar player was in the uh, the Funk Brothers. It was mm-hmm. Robert. It was Robert White. Robert yeah. White is the one who wrote that riff for uh, My Girl. I got sunshine on a cloudy day. I mean, he wrote that riff, and it was yeah. just heartbreaking in the, that documentary where he said he wanted to tell people that was him. But he he stopped himself because people wouldn't believe him because he had become, you know, who he was ultimately in life. And even Barrett said at some point he had to go and just get a job because the record industry wasn't paying him early in his career. It's like these are real cats, man. And they had yeah. real with families that they love and children that they love. And they had to provide and do what they had to do. But Scott is right. I'm gonna let you have the final word, brother. I mean, you already have. But these unsung heroes have to be. Uh, talk to. Uh, can you tell us anything else about what you got coming up uh, that you can talk about? Uh, tell us how we can follow you. I know you got a Facebook page, good brother. Uh, land the plane, good brother. How do we follow you? Uh, this month, Hot Stacks 50th Anniversary Project comes out. It's, it's in several different configurations, including a 10 LP box set and a, and a uh, 12 CD box set. Uh, this is the first time that every syllable, every sound, every piece of music, everything that was recorded at the LA Memorial Com- uh, Coliseum, as well as the other surrounding venues, um, is all being put out there. I think it includes 31 never released uh, performances. So I wrote the cultural essay for that project. It's a first for me. I usually am always the one writing musical stuff, but this one, I wrote a cultural essay. I talk about my family uh, moving to Los Angeles the exact summer that Wattstacks happened. And I talk a lot of, a lot about what the city was like at that time, sociopolitically and uh, community-wise and, and all that. So anyway, I'm very proud of that. That comes out uh, this month, I believe, the last Friday, 24th, I believe, of of February. And then in March, another one of my personal babies comes out. That is a three CD anthology on Randy Crawford. It's called Randy Crawford. You might need somebody. The Warner Brothers years, 1976, 1993. Hmm. I uh, picked all the music for that. I wrote the liner notes. I sequenced the music into three separate CDs that each tell or really reveal a different side of Randy Crawford. Very, very proud of it. So if you are already a fan of Randy, you will love this and want it because you'll be hearing her music in a whole new way. And uh, and if you've never really gotten into Randy Crawford and all you might know is Street Life and Rio de Janeiro Blue or something, I highly recommend that you check it out because Randy Crawford is one of the last great voices of Black music. And uh, she's still with us. She's retired, though. She's not recording. 
but oh my goodness, those records and the way that, you know, I put them together for this anthology, you're going to love. Well, that's our show, y'all. Psychotic Bump School is the place where education and entertainment meet. At the intersection of funk and soul, my name is DJ Rome, and you know we're here every Monday evening from 5.30 p.m. to 7 p.m. Pacific Time, and it repeats again on Friday evenings from 6.30 p.m. to 8 p.m. Pacific Time. Check back with us. We shall return next week. Also want to thank our very, very special guest for the evening, A. Scott Galloway, and of course, our good brother, Mr. DJ Tomas. Also want to send a very, very special shout out to Mr. Frank Starks, who is the Iron Man behind the board. And we're out of here, y'all. Take care. <laughs>